Any child who is raised and is allowed to explore the boroughs and streets of New York City is bound to come away with a love and deep appreciation for the arts. The Garment District in Midtown Manhattan, the storied theaters of Broadway, and the sounds escaping the walls of Carnegie Hall found their way deep into the psyche of Tristan Kier Francis and led him into the world of art. As a young adult, Tristan explored becoming a filmmaker. However, it was his passion for design that would eventually win him over. The memories of iconic New York buildings and their regal interiors flooded his thoughts, and he decided to follow his dreams to adorn the streets and boulevards of the world, building by building. Now an accomplished interior designer and qualified architect, Tristan shares with us the highlights of what is already a superb career and explains his plans for the Kier Company and all of his other business ventures. Here is the energetic and unforgettable Tristan Kier Francis. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Tristan, welcome to Planet 30. So good to be here, my friend, on Planet 30. I feel like I'm at the third rock from the sun. You are. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the planet. Um, You're a man of many talents. Uh, You've been there. You've done that. Um, Tell us us about your journey, uh, both as an artist and an entrepreneur. I've had a good run thus far. Um, I'm looking forward to the elevation of this run. Uh, you know, I started my company 14 years ago in 2006 when I moved uh, to uh, Washington, D.C. I moved to D.C. in 2005, uh, and I was trying to just figure out and, you know, navigate this landscape. I had never lived in this city before, but I remember coming here when I was a kid with my mother. My mother's been a city worker for the New York City uh, uh, Human Resources um, Administration's Department working in uh, Medicaid and welfare, public assistance programs. And we would come here for rallies, for union rallies, and it was just a fascinating place. I never thought I would live here. Um, and I always knew from when I was a kid that I really, really, really wanted to own a business. I wanted to do something special. Um, I looked at, you know, being a marine biologist and, you know, being a fashion designer, so many different professions that I explored. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the development of this company and, and, and where we're going and all the subsidiary brands that I've created. Um, this run is getting better. So I guess you could say we're just getting started. So this is our second second heat, if you will. I'm I'm, I'm ready for the Olympics in Tokyo next year. <laughs> Interesting. Now tell me. I mean, you you mentioned moving to DC in uh, 2006, but I want you to go back a bit further. Um, sure. What really inspired you um, as a as a kid? Because you you seem to have such an artistic eye. Um, was it any particular? I don't know. Television show? Any books? Music? Was it New York City itself? What inspired you as a, as a, as a kid, um, artistically especially? Sure. My mother gave me Tonka trucks when I was a little boy. And I think that, you know, 
because I grew up in the South Bronx, because I, I'm the son of Panamanian immigrants, I'm the grandson of a grandmother that came to this country in 1969 as a maid for a wealthy Jewish family. She worked for them for 10 years, and then she would go on and work another 27 years at the Albert Einstein Hospital in Bronx, in the Bronx, New York. Uh, she was a nurse's aide. Basically, her job was to clean up after nurses. I didn't want to be a servant. I didn't want to clean up after people. Um, I vowed that, you know, I would take my grandmother's experiences and do something different. So getting those Tonka trucks was uh, a moment in time in 1988. It piqued an interest in me. I loved, you know, playing. I was a typical little boy. You know, I loved playing with trucks and cars and things of that nature. But I never knew what the direct association with a Tonka truck would mean for my life. You know, fast forward, um, you know, 20 years later, you know what I mean? Or 20 plus years later, if you will. Um, I never realized that construction and architecture, you know, lived in those Tonka trucks. Interior design lived in those Tonka trucks. Production design lived in those Tonka trucks. You know, if you ever think about what Tonka trucks are, you know, you have the dump truck, you have the, 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 the Caterpillar, um, you have all these different trucks that, 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 function and do things uh, to uh, affect an environment, you have to carry cement on a Tonka truck, you know, if you will. Um, you know, you're, you're digging up the dirt, you know, you're, you're carrying debris away. Never did I imagine that this would be my realization, you know, all these years later. Um, so that was, that was the moment. Um, and I love to design spaces. Um, my mother would come home often. And I could hear her screaming downstairs because she fell over the sofa. And the reason why she fell over the sofa was because it wasn't there the day before. It wasn't there earlier in the day. And so I had rearranged the living room so many times in a week. It was my showroom. It was my, it was my playground. It was where I was able to hone and develop my talent. And no one ever said, you're an architect or you're an interior designer. You should go out and be one. You know, I didn't have examples of that where I came from. You know, we had a we had a lot of, you know, interesting times in our life growing up, um, my sister and I, um, to a single mother in the South Bronx. You know, there wasn't, you know, beautiful lush landscapes of, you know, grass to run and play on. We played in the fire hydrant with all the other kids that were on welfare and poor like us. So inspiration came from some of the most interesting places. It was not until I actually discovered Manhattan, I discovered the city, and I, I was so attracted to it. It was almost like being a moth attracted to a flame. And that is where my creative ability really soared. I had gone to the National Academy of Fine Arts on scholarship in high school, and I learned how to paint and sculpt and do all these incredible things. And, um, you know, one of my teachers had a connection um, with... Uh, NYU Tisch, she just so happened to be my art teacher. Her husband was a professor at the Tisch School of the Arts, and I got to meet people like Saul Williams and Mahershala Ali before they were ever known. And so it, that was another form of inspiration. So the, the, the timeline of inspiration and what inspired me to this point was cultivated and developed over a 20-year period through my life, from, my, from me being a very small little boy to going through my teenage years into becoming, you know, a young adult. So um, it was it was a great run. And, of course, you know, there's always Greenwich Village. You know, I was a little village kid hanging out with my friends, experiencing the Greenwich Village um, vibe and, you know, the downtown scene. Um, you remember our professor, Michael Holman, always talking about, Michael Holman was our professor at Howard University in script writing. Michael Holman always talked about 
the downtown scene in New York. It was so incredible. It was so peaceful. It was so welcoming, but it was artistic. Um, and I always tell people that when they ask me where I'm from, I'm from the South Bronx, born in Brooklyn, raised in the South Bronx, but I played in Manhattan. I was from the old New York, and the old New York, uh, you know, it's still the city that never sleeps, but the old New York was my inspiration. So you, you fast forward through childhood, uh, your teenage years, uh, I know that you, at one point, uh, were even a dancer. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, still a dancer. Still a... <laughs> so, it... how, many, how many West Indian and Panamanian people you know that's not a dancer, you know? This um, is true. You know, I, I remember, um, you know, going to the Bank Street College of Education's Liberty Partnership Program, and being an angry little boy because, you know, I never understood why my family had to go through some of the things that we went through. I never understood why my father was living in Los Angeles, California, um, you know, with another family. Um, and there was, there was no opportunity for, um, us to, to, to benefit from, um, what he was getting, you know, um, there were a lot of nights where I make this joke all the time. We had dinner by candlelight and it wasn't a fabulous restaurant like Cipriani or at the time, you know, in New York, growing up in New York and the old New York, it was Tavern on the Green. I, I remember eventually going to Tavern on the Green, but we didn't have dinners like that at by candlelight. Dinners by candlelight in the South Bronx meant that your mother couldn't pay the light bill and the power was cut off and you had to have a whole bunch of candles on standby and you had to be ready to turn the candles on and have your dinner, do your homework and figure it out. Um, and so, you know, it, it was, you know, those, those, those were, those were challenging moments, you know, um, and dance was something that allowed me to be free. It allowed me to really explore my body and, and wave of motion and really connect with music and sound and discipline. You know, I sang in the chorus in junior high school and I, I was in stage plays and when I got to high school I was involved in stage plays. I sang in the, in the gospel choir uh, in college. I was, I was always involved in the arts. You know, I cultivated my artistry from the moment I came out of the womb and I was given, you know, the tools to be a great artist, a paintbrush, a canvas, modeling clay, um, you know, uh, nilonium block and uh, to make prints and things of that nature. And I had a, a tremendous fascination and reverence uh, for museums. I would go to the Museum of the Television and Radio in New York City, which I don't think is there anymore, um, and watch old Mary Tyler Moore shows. That was my escape from the Bronx. Um, I would go to uh, MoMA. I would go to the Whitney. I remember Faith Ringgold had an exhibition of her story quilts, and I just fell in love with um, Faith Ringgold. And I remember seeing Micheline Thomas's work um, at MoMA and um, just being fascinated fascinated in her, her caricaturization of um, Japanese uh, folks in blackface and, um, and, and, and just her wildly, wildly imaginative artistic abilities. I loved the museum, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, it, was one of, it was one of my great escapes. I would go there often. But one of my favorite places, which is no longer open, is the Hayden Planetarium at uh, the Museum of Natural History. Um, 
that was a fascinating place for me, looking at astronomy and learning about the stars and planets like Planet 30. Um, you know, <laughs> that was that was remarkable to me. Um, you know, I've, as I said, I've had several iterations of what I wanted to do in life. Um, you know, I wanted to be a marine biologist for a very long time. So I went and I studied, you know, at the, um, at the New York Aquarium and at the Bronx Zoo. And I, I worked um, in the, at the aquarium. I worked uh, in the Pacific walruses and Atlantic bottlenose dolphins exhibit. And I also uh, studied harbor seals. Um, you know, I, when I was at the Bronx Zoo, I um, studied the primates, the western lowland gorillas at the Congo. Um, and, you know, I did the things I needed to do to, to, to really develop and explore, um, you know, who I was and really develop the abilities that I thought I was interested in. But at the end of the day, it always came back to the arts. You know, arts was always first and foremost. So I gave up the idea of being a marine biologist. I explored being a zoologist. I explored being a primatologist. I explored being a fashion designer. And I said, you know, these are not the things for me. But it was always art. It was always interior design. It was always architecture. And then it became an obsession and a fascination with writing, which has led me to becoming a producer uh, and a screenwriter working on various projects right now in development for um, uh, for pickup in, in Hollywood. So I've had a wonderful life for the last 37 years, and I look forward to having an even better life for the next 37 and beyond. Um, but the arts will always be at the forefront of everything that I do in my life. Quite the journey. Um, tell us about Benedict College. I know that um, it is your alma mater. And uh, it means a lot to you. Tell us a bit about your time there and why Benedict College uh, means so much to you. You know, Benedict was, is, a, is a storied little place. <laughs> and it's, it's dealing with some interesting stories now, but that's a whole other conversation. But uh, Benedict saved my life and it saved the lives of many other students that came from the circumstances that I came from. You know, as I shared, growing up in, in the South Bronx, you know, to a mother who was a single mother, um, who um, didn't always get it right, but did her best to get it right. Um, I came to Benedict Homeless with everything that I owned in garbage bags. Really? Um, and, and I always, yeah, literally. And I tell people, I took a 16-hour ride on the Greyhound bus from New York's um, Port Authority bus terminal with my mother. She dropped me off, um, and that was it. And she turned right around and went back home. Um, so it was a quick turnaround for her. And I stayed there for four years. And when I graduated, I graduated with honors. Um, I was a student body president. I was involved in everything. I was one of the most popular students um, there um, and one of the well, most well-known students. And I fought for the student body, um, and I fought for student rights, um, and I was successful. Uh, but when I left, I left with luggage. So to come there with trash bags and be able to accumulate so much stuff that you could pack it up in uh, was amazing. Uh, and so uh, Benedict is a dear place for me, just like many historically black colleges. You know, at this at this time, Benedict is struggling um, financially and going through a lot of unfortunate situations. Um, you know, and, and I've you know decided to step up and try to figure out how I can help along with you know other concerned alumni and um you know to to save benedict college um and this is something that's happening with many other hbcus this conversation is nothing new it's nothing different um but our challenges are very unique i'll just say that um 
but Benedict is, is, is a place that has really captivated my heart and has applied of my heart because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Benedict College. And, and the fact that I had professors and I had advisors and I had faculty and staff and other people that may not have educated me, but they interacted with me. They believed in me. Um, and they pushed myself and so many others, countless numbers of students that matriculated with me at Benedict, um, to, to, to be a powerful good. That's Benedict's model, a powerful good, um, in society. And so I'm ever thankful. I'm, I'm ever indebted to Benedict. Yeah, you definitely do have a lot of love for Benedict. So, at one point, you worked for Sony Music, which is just very fascinating uh, when we think about where you've arrived now. But you mentioned that art as a whole has shaped you. So tell us a bit about your journey, uh, your time at Sony Music. Has it helped your creative process, even within design? Because music and writing, they're all related at, at some point, right? It, uh, it all comes together. So how, how did your time at Sony Music um, help you out? Sony, you know, my experience working at Sony was fun in the sense that I worked for some great ladies um, who loved me. And I think that if I was able to stay there longer, um, I would have been an executive by now. Uh, and those ladies would have been my mentors. Uh, I, you know, was hired as a marketing coordinator. It was a very short lived position because at the time I was hired, Sony and BMG were merging and BMG had the controlling share of of everything and so you know bmg acquired um sony music and so naturally if another company acquires most of the team members that are on the other company side it's almost like the sprint t-mobile merger most of the sprint people will lose their jobs and the t-mobile people will stay because t-mobile is the one with the money and has decided to acquire this company and so and that's what happened um i worked in the classical division and international product international um marketing and product excuse me, international marketing and product management. I worked for two fabulous women, one uh, who was the senior vice president of international marketing and product management. Her name was Faye Perkins. And the vice president of international marketing and product management was a fabulous lady by the name of Michelle Arante Northlinger. I don't know where they are, but I'm sure they're somewhere doing something incredible. Um, we worked on the Broadway album for Lemony Snickets, uh, which was starring Jim Carrey. The movie was starring Jim Carrey. I don't know if he saw it on Broadway in the actual Broadway uh, production. Um, and uh, we worked with this amazing jazz singer who is just out of this world. And I, I look forward to meeting her someday. Her name is Jane Monheit. We had a Czechoslovakian uh, singer by the name of Mario Frangoulis, and of course, the world-renowned cellist, uh, Mr. Yo-Yo Ma, was on the label as well. So it was fascinating um, uh, to be able to be on that floor, on the 16th floor of 555 Madison Avenue, which is the Sony building, and have the Sony gospel folks across the hallway, and you can walk around the building and, you know, and go to all the other music divisions. And um, our area was naturally very quiet because it's classical, so it was very classy and, and quiet. I kind of like that. I don't know if I would have fared well on, in the hip hop and R and B floor because those floors were very, very loud. <laughs> and you know, if, if you know, if music, if music was playing on the classical side, it was something that was very calm and elegant. It wasn't anything very loud. Um, but you know, no, no slight at you know uh, 
R&B and, and hip hop. It was just the fact that it was a certain level of elegance and sophistication that I appreciated about working in the classical division. Um, wish I was still there to this day. Uh, the music industry is a very interesting industry. You know, there are a lot of you know amazing artists at any given time. You know, you saw different you know artists coming. And I remember one day I was coming in the building and I was on the elevator with the artist. His name was Lil, Lil Flip. And God knows where Lil Flip is, but I think he was like a one-hit wonder. And I'm just on the elevator, and I'm just like, wow, this is Lil Flip. Now, I didn't say anything to him because I'm, I'm not one of those people that fan out. You know, celebrities are just normal people, and I, I know many of them. But it was just interesting because on any given day, there was a famous person coming in to talk about their contract, talk about their project, whatever. You know, um, but Sony was a great place. You know, if, 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 I, if I ever wanted to go back into the music industry... Sony would probably be a place I would I would love to work at again because it was cool. That is fascinating. You transitioned from music and dance, and I think you 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 mentioned sculpting at one point. Now you transitioned from this this world of art at Benedict College, and um, you became an event coordinator at some point in time for a large uh, law firm in Washington D.C. and of course. You would have run into politicians, but that led you to designing for some of them. So tell tell us about those experiences, designing for some so of worked, DC's uh, top brass. Sure. So um, I worked as the conference services general manager for a company that's uh, a French-owned company called Sodexo North America. And I, uh, served, uh, I served at the Venable Law Firm. I worked at the Venable Law Firm, which is one of the top 20 law firms in the, uh, in the world. Um, and, um, I worked there for four years and I worked, um, with some amazing attorneys, one of which, um, I have the highest level of respect and regard for. His name is Carl Racine. And, uh, Carl Racine is now the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, and I've served him as a designer. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Vince Gray, um, who was the former mayor, um, uh, immediate past mayor, uh, and I was working on his political campaign. Um, and I was working as a member of his advance team, and, you know, they had said to me, Tristan, you know, could you help get his office together? And I said, um, sure, uh, you know, and, and I didn't realize that it was just going to be me and someone assisting me. Uh, and they were astounded by how beautiful um, the office was uh, once I was done with it. Um, Amazing. And I wasn't, I wasn't officially hired as the mayor's interior designer. I was asked to come in and make the office sparkle. I think that they knew that I was an interior designer. Uh, it's interesting because the, the writer from the Washington Post, I won't give her any credit and say her name because she insulted me by saying that I had a gift for arranging interiors. She wouldn't refer to me as an interior designer. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I could say some few choice words, but I'll refrain. Uh, but um, I was very, very pleased uh, by the outcome of that project. Um, and the mayor was just you know, in awe. And when he walked in, he said, my God, look at my office. And I became the talk of the town. And, you know, I got a Washington Post article about it and everyone talked about how beautiful this space was. 
and people began to take notice of me. Um, and I started receiving clients. Um, I did uh, Lee's Flowers, which is a historic flower shop on uh, 11th and East Street. Uh, and the mayor of Washington, D.C. orders her flowers from there. And um, she saw the space and she just talked about how she loved everything. Uh, and she said to me, uh, you know, can you do my home? And I said, sure. And it's funny because um, I had business cards on me. But, uh, you know, when when she approached me, um, I didn't want to seem eager, you know, as if, you know, I was I was hard up for the job. I mean, it was exciting. I could pinch myself. And I remember telling her, I said, well, if you're really interested in me doing your space, I said, uh, you can Google the firm. Uh, and, you know, you can get in contact with us. And there was a woman standing behind her. So the man said, sure, no problem. I'll let you know. Um, and there was a woman standing behind her. And the woman said, do you know what you just did? You just told the mayor of Washington, D.C. to Google you. And I said, and ma'am, you can do the same if you'd like to hire me. And I walked away. I would say, like, maybe <laughs> two weeks later, the mayor called. How did she get my phone number? My client gave it to her. My client asked if it was okay. I said, sure. And in 29 days, I transformed her very barren home, the first floor of her very barren home, into heaven. And that heavenly space that is, you know, inspired by, you know, mid-century modern 1960s furniture, and, and it has those those design influences throughout the, the what I call a fat L, because it's an L-shaped space that I did that's comprised of her... Uh, her foyer, her living room, her dining room, and her sitting area. It is a beautiful place. Um, I was honored when, you know, she adopted a child and the Today Show uh, came to her home and her, her and Hoda Kotb did a one-on-one interview talking about the adoption of this beautiful little baby. Um, and you saw all my work on the Today Show. Now, I naturally wasn't mentioned because the segment had nothing to do with me. But I pinched myself, you know, just knowing that I did that job um, and I did it with a level of professionalism that I bestow upon all of my clients. And so to be able to say that I'm a designer, an architect under 40 years old, and I've worked with so many different people, um, high level people that are noticeable and recognizable. Um, and I'm from the South Bronx, you know, that's, you know, I, I just look at that with gratitude. Definitely, definitely. You, you, you have a level of confidence um, that's remarkable. Where, where does the confidence come from? Failure. The, ah. Failure. Um, failure and also the fact that so many people say you won't make it. Um, it won't happen for you. You know, I remember being called um, everything but a child of God when I was a little boy. Um, you know, I was always very different. Um, you know, I never was interested in the things that the other kids were doing. You know, when the little boys came outside and they didn't bathe from the night before and they were ready to go and play manhunt, that just wasn't something I was interested in doing. You know, um, <laughs> it just wasn't something I was interested in doing. I wanted to be clean. I wanted to be, you know, fresh and I wanted to look good, and I was like every other little kid. I went out, and I played, and I had a good time. But for me, you know, cleanliness was next to godliness. And Ivory know, soap of it, the 80s. It, you know, yeah, and I, um, 
it had come to a point in my life where I said, you know what? I want to go into this city and I want to see what this city has to offer. I used to walk Crispin down Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, mainly Fifth Avenue and down Central Park West and down Broadway, which you've lived in New York, some of the main streets of Manhattan, some of the longest streets in Manhattan that, that really connect the city to the other boroughs. Um, and I would dream, you know, I would I would wonder what was it like to walk into those beautiful luxury high rise apartment buildings mm-hmm. that had doormen, and what was what would it what was it like to go into an apartment there and say this is my home, you know? Because every night I went home to nothing in the Bronx, you know. I went home to to, to a tremendous sadness in the Bronx, and no one ever knew what I was going through. And you know, I had kids that would say some of the the most hurtful things to me, um, and and I took it. I dealt with it. I I, I wasn't a fighter, you know. Um, I, I just didn't believe in, in in fighting. I didn't want to fight. I wanted to be. I wanted to have peace. But everybody didn't want that, and so I had to realize. Okay, well, if if if, if they don't want to have peace, I've got to have some inner peace, and you know. When Jay-Z talked about the school of the hard knocks, it's so true. I came from the school of the hard knocks. You know, one of my favorite childhood movies was Annie. And the reason why that was that was my favorite movie was because soundtrack hard knock life. yeah, Yeah, hard knock life. It's a hard knock life. It was a hard knock life. It's still a hard knock life. You know, I walk into rooms now as an interior designer and now as an architect, an educated architect, someone who went to architecture school and graduated magna cum laude. Um, and, you know, white designers look at me like, why are you here? You know, um, right here in Washington, D.C., in the in, in the in the in the Washington Design Center, I've experienced a tremendous wealth of racism. Um, I remember going to an event at the National Press Club, and I was sitting at the table uh, with uh, a group of people, and you know, I bought a ticket. So you know, I was given a ticket. Rather, I'm sorry, I bought a ticket. I was given a ticket um, by my friend uh, Belinda Vandermeer. And um, she was the director of membership at that time. And, and I, you know, I walked in um, and I sat at the table and I had a really great seat and I had this black Michael Kors suit on and um, fire engine red glasses with tail capone made in Belgium. And this white man says to me, are you security? Mm. And it was, he was trying to make a joke out of it. And so I didn't answer him immediately. And so he said it again, and then he said it a third time, and I said, sir, if I was security, I would be taking your smart ass out of here right now, because this comment that you've made is highly inappropriate, okay? And everybody at the table looked at me like, oh my God, and it was tense. It was tense for the entire time. Like, everyone was noticeably uncomfortable. I didn't speak to anyone else at the table. I was the only black person sitting at the table. And and I don't think everybody felt the way this gentleman felt. But I think that people were uncomfortable because he made it uncomfortable. How dare you ask someone, you know, just because they have an all black suit. And I had an all black suit on because I was a 400 pound man in misery. And I was trying to conceal some of the fat that I was carrying, not the fact that I was a security guard. You know, so, you know, that confidence lives with me every day. You know, if not me, then who, Crispin? If not now, then when? Okay, mm-hmm. I've got to be the best. I've got to be the baddest. I've got to be the first. I've got to be number one at, at all costs. 
So when I walk into the room, I need all eyes to be on me and everybody ready to say, we want to work with him. There's no one else that matters in the room but Tristan. And that's it. Hmm. When I'm when I'm when I'm when I'm hunting for, for for work, when I'm going after, I am an apex predator when it comes to this design and, and lifestyle business that I've created. Okay, you have got to be an apex predator when you're in an industry with other predators who do not look like you and who are, they're not apex predators because they're not going after anything. You understand? And what I mean by that is they're not they're not trying to knock anybody out of the way because they're all they've all made it possible for them to sustain themselves in the business. But when you come in and you don't look the same or you're not of the same pedigree, they don't want you there. So an orca is an apex predator with no other known threats. So naturally I'm in a room full of dolphins who are pretty and want to jump up and do all these interesting tricks. I gotta take them out. Interesting analogy. You know, everything you just explained, I'm sure can be translated to other industries. Mm -hmm. So in terms of advice for up and coming designers, especially designers of color, what would you say? How, how should they, or rather, what should I say? How can they navigate um, such obstacles within the industry? Designers must understand, particularly designers of color, make your own lane. Um, you know, there are a lot of folks out here that are what I call decorators. They don't have the first license. They have no training. They have no education. They have nothing. But but good talent that is that has not been educated by uh, a school or anything like that. And so, you know, and I hate to sound like that because... You know, a lot of you have a lot of great skilled and gifted designers out here, but guess what? You've got to go to school. You've got to get licensed. You've got to have credentials. Bottom line, because that's what separates the greats from those who want to be great. And for particularly for designers of color, you've always got to go above and beyond the call of duty. I am a licensed general contractor, construction manager, and home improvement contractor. I'm working on my architecture licensure right now, and I'm an interior designer. Okay, so that is five principal areas that I can walk into a room with and put it on the table and say, how many of you have this? And I'm, and I'm going to figure out how to get a sixth. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's almost like it's more than the trifecta. Okay, I've won the triple crown already. Okay, I'm literally just trying to get a bigger purse. Okay, while I'm bringing in my next horse in to come back and win that shit again. <laughs> and that's what's most important. You know, you can never sit back as a person of color in the design industry or any industry for that matter where you're an anomaly because you will never matter to these people, okay? Racism is alive and well. People are prejudiced. And and, and, and here's the thing. People just try to blame it on white people. It's not only white people that are racist and prejudiced. You have other races that are racist. Other, excuse me, are racist that are racist uh, and prejudiced and don't want. Uh, African-Americans or black people, brown people uh, to have a seat at the table, you know? And so with that known, you just got to be smart. You know, I've never gotten into a situation where I fought anybody verbally because I'm not putting my hands on anyone because that's just not, that's not how I roll. I've never gotten into any arguments or whatever, but I acknowledge what was, what was, you know, what was clearly the elephant in the room. You don't want me here. You're not comfortable with me here. You're insincere. And the way you're talking to this designer so sincerely and kind and you're, you're 
you know, going the extra mile. You're not doing that with me. And I understand why you're not doing that with me because you don't want to do that with me because you don't want me here. But just know that I'm here and I'm going to take this opportunity and benefit from it. You know, young people who are coming up in these industries, as I said, not only the design industry need to be aware. You need to be better. You have to work hard. Okay. If it means that you have to pull an all nighter to get that A and get all A's that semester and every semester that you're there, you need to do it because you know, you don't have the, the good fortune of having a wealthy parent that can write a check to the, to, to have the library named after them. And then you get to go to school for free and then you don't have to pay. Um, you don't have to take an SAT. So it's like this college cheating scandal. You know, everybody's in an uproar over it. Do you know how long people have been doing that? Do you know how long wealthy people have been doing that, making it possible for their children to get ahead? And because they because they know that their children are not the brightest stars in the sky, so they don't have the the the, the um, aptitude to actually go in and sit and take an exam and do well on it, so that they can you know uh, get into a good school. You'll be surprised. You know, people people buy their way into things all the time. This is why they say money is the root of all evil. So young people coming up, I will say to you, in order to be the best, in order to get ahead, in order to, you know, basically defy the odds, you have to be great. You have to be better than the rest. You have to wake up if it's three hours earlier, you know, they say the early bird gets the worm. You have to do everything that's outside of the box and what you may believe to be unconventional that's how you secure the win. That's how you secure the bag. And that's it. Understood. Understood. Now, you mentioned earlier that you've worked with, um, that you had no fear of celebrities. And I think that attitude is probably what um, what allowed you to work with them. Who are some of the celebrities that you've done projects with? So, um, I've worked with Kim Whitley. Um, I've worked with... Fabulous uh, Comedian? With Omar as a comedian, Kim Whitley, she had a show on OWN um, called Raising Whitley. Um, we filmed for the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, I've, I'm working on the project with Omarosa, who's known as America's Bad Girl. Um, <laughs> she's a very, very dear, close friend. And, you know, I have other projects in development that I won't speak about at this time because I always tell people, I'll talk about it when the ink is dry on the paper and the first check is cleared the bank. <laughs> good policy. Very good policy. Mm -hmm. Making sure that the paperwork's done. What what's some of the some advice that, um, you would give in terms of the business side of things? You know, you, you we we spoke a lot about the art, you know, the artistic side. But in terms of being an entrepreneur, uh, especially as a creative entrepreneur, I know uh, many people struggle with balancing both sides. What 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 is some advice you'd give, especially on the business side, to anybody that's up and coming? Uh, you know, manage your own money. Properly, um, I manage a P&L for a small company that, you know, is bringing in revenues under $1 million. You know, it, it was before before COVID-19, it was just myself and a design associate is now just myself because, you know, naturally I can't afford to pay someone to sit at home when we're not making any money. So I've had to lay him off. Um, and so I manage my money to ensure that the IRS doesn't come and knock on my door. Um, you know, I am not a fan of the FBI or the federal government being in my business or the IRS or anyone interrogating me uh, with the potential of going to jail. Jail is not a place that I've ever been interested in. So, <laughs> therefore, um, I, I do the right thing. 
um, you know, get every certification that you can, every license, every credential. You know, they may say, you know what, this fool has A to Z, you know, on the back of his name. But guess what? I earned it. I worked hard for it. Um, that's that's what separates you from those that can and those that do. And I am one of those people that do. You know, I, it's not about can. I do. You know, can is a given because if I have the skill set, I can. But I do because I'm credentialed to do so. Um, you know, as a, it's hard running a small business. Uh, you know, you've got to stay busy. You know, I literally am the principal of the company. I'm the accountant. Uh, I am the web designer, you know, I am the, the, the social media person, I'm doing it all. Uh, and I do it with a, with a, an amazing level of grace, um, you know, and we're not in the startup phase anymore, but, you know, getting a, a, a architecture and interior design company off the ground is a lot of work. It takes a lot of trust, it takes a lot of time. Um, and I'm getting to the point where the business is growing tremendously and, you know, we're just, you know, waiting for that big break to where we can get several customers that are multi-million dollar customers that can sustain the business and, you know, feed and, and, and take care of a, a small staff so that we can keep this thing going so that I can, you know, literally focus on, you know, being the face of the brand. Um, those are just all important things and knowledge, constantly keep educating yourself, you know, go to conferences, you know, host conferences, host masterclasses. I have a masterclass coming up, coming up now, three part series. Um, and I'm doing it for free. People are staying at home for COVID-19. Why not, you know, do a masterclass where they can learn for free. And then, you know, there's an option where you can have a one-on-one -on -one with me, which you'll have to pay. They'll have to pay for. I'm doing an elite masterclass series with some of my celebrity friends talking about various things, Hollywood, business, the boardroom, um, you know, uh, lessons, things of that nature that people will have to pay for. So, you know, you give a little to get a lot. That's very important. Understood. Understood. Uh, a lot going on. <laughs> um, what, you know, even as a designer, who are some of the designers that you looked up to, uh, both in, for interior design and for architecture? You know, I didn't know of any interior designers growing up. Um, there are not many interior designers that I look up to now. Um, uh, there are a couple. Um, I like Barbara Berry. I like Bunny Williams. I like Kelly, Wurs Kelly Wurstler. Excuse me. Um, I think they're I think they're great designers. Um, I think Nate Burkis is a great designer. And his husband, um, uh, whose name uh, I think it's, I think his husband's name is Brent or something like that. Um, I, I think they're a great group, um, a great duo rather. Um, there's a designer um, that I just learned about. Uh, his name is Corey Damon Jenkins. He's an African American designer. Um, he's a pretty good designer. Um, I like Vincente Wolf. Um, I just think he's amazing, and I met him two years ago um, at an event that I was invited to in New York. Um, my inspiration, really, and my love for design, um, the elegance of design, came from people like Audrey Hepburn. I was—I'm a huge Audrey Hepburn fan. I loved her. Mm. Um, you know, from from the moment I saw her in uh, *Roman Holiday* and uh, *Sabrina* and uh, *My Fair Lady*. She was just something special and spectacular. Um, I loved Fred Astaire. 
Um, I think that I tried to be a dancer like Fred Astaire when I was a kid. Fred Astaire was just incredible. Um, Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald um, will always hold a special place in my heart. Sarah Vaughn is my favorite jazz singer of all times. She is amazing. She was amazing, rather. Um, I, I've had I've had so many wonderful people that have that have inspired me. Um, I'm a big Frank Sinatra fan. Um, I'm a big Dizzy Gillespie fan. I loved Cole Porter. Miles Davis has always, you know, been someone that's in, you know, on heavy rotation. Um, and one of the biggest inspirations of my life was Barbara Streisand. Um, there were, you know, I can't wait to meet and work with Barbara Streisand. That is one of my, that it was Barbara Streisand, Sarah Vaughn, um, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, and Marvin Hamlish. And unfortunately, out of those four people, two are dead and two are alive. Whoopi Goldberg and Barbara Streisand are still alive. Marvin Hamlish, the great composer of, of, of our time, um, may he rest in peace. He died. And, um, of course, Sarah Vaughn. And so I never got to meet them, never got to work with them, um, have yet to meet Whoopi or Barbara. But, um, I know that, I know that Whoopi and I will work together someday because there is a Broadway show that I'm writing, um, that I want to work with only one person. Only one person can produce this. And that's Whoopi Goldberg. Um, and I have another film that I'm writing called um, Ballet. And it is it is a fabulous story of a black ballerina. And that's all I'm going to say. Um, and I have music that Barbara Streisand has already recorded, um, you know, on her encore album that I, I would like to use um, and, and work with her on producing the score for that film. Um, you know, so I've got a lot of big dreams. I've got a lot going on. Um, and, you know, every day is a different day. Every day is, is a wonderful day. And I, I, every day I wake up and I, I say something that Oprah Winfrey said that we should all say is the moment you open your eyes before you touch your phone, because, you know, we're of that generation where this phone is like, you know, crack. Um, it's always in your hand. You're always doing something on it. Oprah says, thank God. So every morning I wake up, I say, thank you, Lord, for another day. Every night I go to sleep, I say thank you, Lord, for another day. And I'm just humbly thankful for it, for all the blessings. Now, all of that, all of those things have culminated and have come together, and they've informed you, uh, like you said, as a designer. Can you describe your motif? Um, you know, my, my design aesthetic is, is very much so um, a mid-century, a mid-century modern uh, aesthetic. Um, I, I'm, I'm all about timeless elegance and, and, and timeless elegance is not a, um, timeless elegance is not about, um, you know, traditional, uh, design or, you know, like French Provençal or, you know, anything like that. It's just timeless in the sense that, um, it's representative of a period, and the period that I choose is mid-century modern, 1960s mod, very sleek, um, very easy elegance. Um, and it probably it probably has really um, transformed into easy elegance rather than timeless elegance. I think that it's a, it's a timeless look that, ne that, that never fades and it lasts forever, but it's easy in the fact that my design approach is effortless. I like to come into rooms that are just breathtaking, but are not overwhelmed. Designers have a tendency to overwhelm rooms with stuff. You don't need to have nine mirrors in the room and 27 lamps, you know? 
you know, make sure that you have an essential light source that can that can brighten the room and make the room look beautiful. Now, if you have 27 lamps in the room, I would take it that the room is probably a 100 by 300. So that, that clearly that's a ballroom, you know? <laughs> so that might be 27 recess cans. So that makes sense. But if you're in a 30 by 10 room, you know, there's no reason for that, you know? Um, and a 30 by 10 room can easily be a large living room, you know? Um, you know, uh, or a nice size living room, you know, or a studio apartment. But it's easy, elegant, it's effortless. Do you think with the advent of all these home design shows on Bravo and uh, HDTV um, and the and the peaked interest in, in, in home design especially, do you think uh, some designers... You know, does it become overkill at, at a certain point? Like you just you just described, you know, all the lamps and all the, the different colors. Does it, you know, at, at what point does it become overkill? The sat, like the saturation of, of all the folks in the design industry? What's, what's no, no, no. I mean, I mean, in terms of when, um, let me clarify. When, when designers are, are putting together a room or a space, you know, some people are minimalist, but then others sort of, and, and I find this a lot, I think, um, like you mentioned, people put ten lamps in a room. Like when when should designers fall back, and, and at what point is is it too much in terms of the things in the room? You know, well, this is this is this is where I'm talking about. A, this is a further illustration of designers going to school and being skilled and really understanding scale. Um, the scale of a room, you know, uh, and, and, the, and the design elements that make up, you know, uh, how we design spaces. Um, you know, it, it's it, it, the concern is that so many designers, you know, don't know how to design, you know, um, and they are DIYers, you know, and, and we don't call those people designers, we call them decorators. And, and quite a few people, if you ever hear someone say, I'm a decorator, run away. Okay, mm. because what they're there for, what they're basically doing is coming in and they're decorating. It's like decorating for a party. And, you know, you want a permanent design that can be installed and you can live and thrive in it. You don't want decorations that are just going up on a wall that can easily be taken down. Think about the difference between design and decorations. Very two different. Those are two very, very, they're two very, very different words. Um, and so uh, the market is oversaturated with decorators. Um, and I don't ascribe to home and garden television or DIY because what I find with home and garden television and DIY is that a lot of people look for, to those folks who are really not designers. Now, typically you have consultants that are designers that are working on the back end of those shows and putting things together and telling the, the folks that, are, that, that they're perpetuating as designers what to do, what to say, how to arrange it. Um, and it concerns me because it's inauthentic. And so I would say, ultimately, just stop with it, <laughs> you know, and, but it's, it's money, you know, people buying into it and editing is amazing. You know, we can do anything in the editing room. It's just like, I remember Candy Burris saying years ago, oh, you could be a bad singer. We can make you sound good. But what happens when it's time for you to go on stage? You know, I remember years ago, Ashley Simpson, you know, was lip syncing and something happened. Her, her track went out. Um, or her microphone went out and her track was still playing and then people realized, oh, she's not really singing, you know, and then she started doing this really, really interesting dance on stage. Well, guess what? When people realize that a lot of these folks who are, who are selling themselves as designers, 
are not designers, then the jig is up, you know? It, it, it's, it's just one of those things to where the the environment is, is overly saturated, unfortunately, and there's not really much that we can do about it. But we could, we would hope that a lot of these folks would just go away or go to school and, and, and actually be credentialed and, 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 and learn how to design great spaces. Yeah, understood, understood. Now, not to not not to age ourselves here, but um, <laughs> about fifteen years ago, uh, you and I met in a screenwriting class in film school, and uh, at that time, we were one hundred and ten percent sure that we were going to write, create, produce, direct the entire class. As a matter of fact, we were all convinced that we were going to become uh, the next Spike Lee or the next, um, you know, Spielberg. <laughs> Uh, what at what point did it shift for you? You know, what was the catalyst that really propelled you to to uh, move from film into uh, design? You know, I knew I had already worked as a production designer. Um, I always knew I was a designer. Um, it was it, I just felt it was important to go after what I felt. I could do immediately and what I, what I truly loved. And, that, and design was my first love. Um, if you notice early in our conversation, I never mentioned anything about film until I became an adult. It was always design. It was always a love for animals and art. And that was it. And so I needed to develop that. I needed to, to, to make sure that this is what I really wanted to do. You know, I shared with someone recently that I learned that the average millionaire has seven revenue streams okay so seven streams of income coming in so warren buffett is not only working in investments he's working in real estate he's working in energy he's got so many different investments going on that comprises geico um his you know geico he's got you know um that comes that comprises his wealth portfolio and it also gives further explanation as to why he's so wealthy and successful Mm -hmm. and so for me it was important to go after um, something um, that I knew that I could do and I could do well uh, and something that had always been in my heart, um, you know, and it was interesting is that, you know, I'm still working, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still writing, I'm still, you know, producing, um, I'm still a designer, I'm still an architect, um, you know, I've written two children's books, and I'm, I'm working on those children's books now, and, you know, I'm going to hire an illustrator, you know, to um, help me illustrate the pages, and, you know, the, the Kia company is comprised of, interestingly enough, seven brands, okay, and so the Kia company is the, is, is the, the parent company that oversees everything, you got to have a parent company if you can have and so, um, you know, for years, the Kier company was just an interior design company. And I decided that it was important uh, to separate that and, 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 and allow the different brands that I was developing uh, to live alone, to stand alone. It's almost like, you know, being a parent and having children and you've got to, you know, let the kids you know, stand on their own two feet at some point, you know, and, and, and help them grow. But they, they've got to, they've got to gain their own identity and, and, and not live within the parents' identity. So for our interior design and architecture company, I created Wild and Luxor, you mm-hmm. know, which is our Wild and, Wild and Luxor is our 
um, our new um, interior design and architecture subsidiary for the Care Company. And interestingly enough, the name came to me while I was on holiday uh, in Egypt in 2018. Um, Luxor is a is a is a city uh, in Egypt, and I felt like I was wild and free in Egypt, and not wild like a wild animal that didn't have any control, but wild in the sense that I was exotic and, and beautiful Mother Africa, um, and I was in this enchanted place in Luxor, you know, was so beautiful and breathtaking. And I said, you know what? This is going to become a moment, mm. and I have to capture this. I have to capture this, you know, and I have to rebrand my design company as Wild and Luxor because that is what I'm creating. I'm creating these spaces that are wild and luxurious and, 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 and beautiful and effortless and, and the elegance that is associated with these spaces are easy. I remember going uh, to a, an, an event, I think it was in 2016 in New York. Um, yeah, it was 2016 in November. Um, and it, uh, it's the, the, the Association of Furniture something or another. The organization is a furniture organization and um, the, it might have been the Direct Furniture Association, I believe. Yeah, DFA, Direct Furniture Association. Um, and again, in another room where I didn't feel welcome, then people were looking at me like, you know, why are you here? And um, I remember hearing them talk about a report that came out in 2013 that said during the year 2013, I don't know what the statistics are today, um, but millennials made up for 35% of new home purchases. That's almost half of the country. Wow. You know, new home purchases. So millennials were buying up property faster than any other group in the United States of America. As they should. Yeah, as they should. And so they made up for 90% of online home goods purchases. So what that meant was they weren't buying furniture. They weren't physically going to a furniture store. They were buying furniture online and having it delivered. Now, it wasn't the best furniture. You know, it wasn't a Henry Don sofa or, you know, something like that or a Caraggio sofa or a Caraggio bed, whatever. You know, it wasn't anything like that. But at the end of the day, they found something that they liked and they ordered it because they like instant gratification. And so I created the House of Care, and I wanted the House of Care to ultimately be the gateway to modern luxury. This is an online news magazine that we're creating um, that will our digital platform that will almost be like the Oprah Winfrey magazine for, for, for young audiences where they can go and learn about all the latest and greatest trends in the design and lifestyle industry. Um, I have a dog um, and I felt it was necessary to create a semi-luxury pet care line um, and we call it Poochie Per Couture. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm adding... Um, Say that again. Is it Poochie Per Couture? Poochie Per Couture. Poochie Per Couture. <laughs> Um, you know, a little something for the pooch and a little purr for the cat. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a brand that will feature a private label, a private label, um, collection of, uh, gourmet pet foods, accessories, and pet home goods for our beloved, our beloved, uh, four-legged friends. Um, I'm going to get into coffee. And so I've created the interesting coffee house. Um, the, the company that represents, um, uh, my, um, my, my production company uh, for all of my content creation and uh, television and film ventures, literary literary ventures, is a company that I like to call uh, Interesting Art. The very first company that I created 20 years ago is a private label company called Tristezza Lamar. Um, um, and um, it was the first brand that I ever created. Um, and it's our heritage brand. And that will house all of our private label products. 
stationery, whatever we create within our private label um, collection will bear um, the logo of uh, Tristezza L'Amour. And then the newest brand that I just launched, uh, well, I will be launching in about a week or so, is the I Am Tristan brand. And that's my personal brand. Um, and that's the brand that I've created to allow people to connect with me as an artist, as a designer, as a writer, as a producer, as a storyteller, um, and as an individual, as a teacher. Uh, and so I'm really excited. We just created the website. It's the third website. And so um, you know, by the end of this year, the goal is to have all of my company websites off the ground. And so seven websites up and running. I've got three up, so I've got four more to go. Okay. Um, and, you know, um, I'm excited. I'm really, really excited about where this is going. This is awesome. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work that, uh, ahead of you, but but you seem up to the task. Now, how do you how do you balance all of these things? Like, what is a t- what's a typical day for Tristan Kier Francis? Like, you, you wake up at what time and, you know, give us a, a typical day. So I'm a night owl. So I'm up when most people are sleeping. Um, and that's that's somewhat unfortunate because um, I probably need to get on a better sleeping schedule. And I'm working on that. But I find that I get my best ideas and I get the best amount of work done when the phone is not ringing and everybody's asleep. Like many other creatives. Yeah, and so um, I cannot write during the day. I can't. I can't write when the sun is up. You know, I can't do a lot of things when the sun is up. I'm happy so to hear you say that because I think yeah. uh, I fall into that category as well. Yeah, I can't. Most people, you know, I, I'm working during the day, so I, I could build a website during the day. You know, but there are too many distractions, you know, around me during the day. But at night is when I write. Um, I love to look up at the sky. And, at, and, and, and see the stars as I'm writing, um, there is something that is so spiritually transcendent about looking at the sky and really looking at it as, as, as if I'm, I'm looking at it in regard to uh, the sky being heaven and I'm looking for inspiration from God. And so um, mm. I'm, able to, I'm able to write in that respect um, and create. Um, and, that, and that only happens when it's time for me to write. Um, you know, uh, but I work very well at night. And so um, a typical day I wake up, doesn't matter what time of day it is. I'm usually up before 10 um, or by 10. Um, and, you know, I walk the dog and that's our time. And, you know, I used to rush my dog to use the bathroom and I don't do that anymore. Um, so if she wants to stay outside for 45 minutes to an hour. I will give her an hour just to run around and play and smell and do her thing. And I'm just watching her and I'm on my phone doing stuff and I'm writing notes and talking to people, um, checking social media. And then I'm back and I'm back inside. It's COVID-19. So I'm back inside and I'm working on whatever I'm working on. I'm, I have a, a screenplay that I need to write, um, a couple screenplays that I need to write and, so um, I need to get ready for my master class. I'm very happy that I got this website done as quickly as possible um, because, um, you know, I'm leading up to these master classes, I need to be ready. Um, and so while I'm working on master, the master class, I'm also getting um, geared up to uh, write several other, other screenplays and um, put uh, a, a, a situational comedy that I just wrote um, called Apartment 3R um, in the can getting ready so the goal is to come out of COVID-19 with a lot of content ready to go mm-hmm. so that um, I can go and knock on Hollywood's door and pitch a whole bunch of different things hopefully for pickup so you're, you're looking forward to both you know designing buildings uh, designing sets and having um, these different as you said streams of income but all within the creative right. space 
Excellent. So production, so production design will take a backseat. You know, I think that it's time to allow uh, my production design career to take it to step aside. Um, you know, I never truly wanted to be a production designer. I did it because I was good at it. It was something that helped me financially. It was something that allowed me to learn this industry. Um, and so I am not looking forward to being a production designer. I'm looking forward to continue writing. Um, I'm looking forward to continue producing. And I'm looking forward to continue um, uh, show running. But you, so those are my three main, main areas. But you also like to be in front of the camera at some point. Absolutely. Uh, you, did, um, you have done television, am I correct? I've done television. I've been on, uh, I was on a show. I had a recurring role as a, um, as a host of this, this show on the District of Columbia Cable Network called The O. Um, I, I've made several appearances, appearances as a regular. I've worked with Kim Whitley on camera. Um, I've done a lot of, of different things in television, radio, and um, so I'm very, incom- I'm very comfortable in front of the camera. Um, you know, um, I'm not interested in being an actor, um, but if, if that opportunity presented itself and um, I felt that I can, you know, do it some justice, I would do that. But uh, the the money and the control and the, and the true creativity and the power is behind the camera. And I think everyone is so focused on wanting to be talent. You know, it's okay to be talent, but it's, it's better to, to direct the talent and be talent's boss. Mm. Now, you, you, you seem to be moving swiftly in all directions. What are your short-term goals? Like, what's the, what's the thing that you most want within the next two years? I want my website. Uh, I want all, all seven websites up and running. I want all brands up and running. Um, and I would like to have a building in Los Angeles because that's where I'm moving um, that I own where the company is housed. Um and I'd like to be able to walk around that building and take meetings with all the heads of the different companies um, and, and learn about what they're doing um, and, and make sure that it is, you know, it, it's, it's totally influenced by me. And um, I just, I want to run my brands. I want to run my companies. Um, you know, I see myself as an Oprah Winfrey, you know, of the 20th, the 21st century. Um, I think that uh, that's the direction I'm going in with, with multiple brands. So seven brands. Um, that are ready to go, they're almost ready to go. Um, so that's the short term goal, you know, it's just getting this, getting all seven brands up and running, all websites going and successful. And in terms of long term goals, what are, what are, I mean, I know you want to have the building with the companies, but, uh, even beyond that, what are Tristan Kier Francis's wildest dreams? What is that thing that when you look back, uh, and, and you're 90 and you look back and said, yes, I did that. That was my ultimate goal. And I finally accomplished that. What is the that? One of the dreams that I have is to host a show called Globetrotting with Tristan Kier, where I go around the world and I take you into the most beautiful places. It doesn't have to be exotic. It doesn't have to be on the bluest beaches, which is like places like Amritsar, places like Bhutan, places like Tuvalu, you know, um, places places people have never heard of before, you know, going into Tunisia and, you know, um, I mean, going to Burna, Bur- uh, Burma, Borneo, you know, places like Madagascar, places that I've only dreamed of going to and letting you learn about the culture. Um, you know, I look forward to being, you know, uh, a, a black billionaire, you know, one of the wealthiest, you know, black men in the world. Um, I look forward to, you know, helping and reviving Africa, um, that is one of my passions. I want to see persons of color going back to Africa, back particularly African Americans going back to Africa and living in Africa, 
um, Africa is a place that I want, I would like to live. Um, you know, I can't go and live in Africa right now, but eventually I would say by the time I'm 50, I should be living in Africa. I should have a beautiful estate in Africa and that needs to be my permanent residence. Um, Africa is a place that I know that I want to die, die in. I want to be buried in Africa. Um, I want to return to my roots. Um, you know, I want to see Africa thrive like Europe and all these other nations, um, and continents. Um, uh, I look forward to potentially having a family. Um, it may not be children. It might be two dogs and, you know, and, and possibly <laughs> being married. Um, you know, I'm 30, I'm 37. I'll be 38 in September. Children don't, children are wonderful. I mean, I think about kids all the time. And while I would love to have children, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to necessarily have to raise children by myself because it would limit a lot of the things that I'm doing right now, but I could handle it because I would have plenty of help. I've got built in childcare. I've got, you know, my kids would have two grandmothers and a grandfather that could knock it out the park for them. Um, you know, um, and so, you know, I, I haven't really thought about the long term, really. Um, I'm still planning. You know, I'm dealing with a lot of short-term matters right now, um, you know, as things need to happen on the fly. Uh, but I, I know that uh, wealth and prosperity is important. Philanthropy is extremely important to me, giving back and saving historically black colleges and universities. Um, I look forward to revitalizing Benedict College and getting it up to, to at least 20,000 students in the next 10 years and building that campus. I want it to be one of the biggest HBCUs in the world, the number one HBCU in the world, um, the real number one HBCU in the world. Um, <clears throat> that's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we went to Howard, but, you know, that's okay. You know, I didn't go to Howard for undergrad. I went to Howard for grad school. So well, you know. Benedict. Well, you know. <laughs> You know, I, at least I can say I went to I went to I went to one of the number ones. I went to the Black Harvard. You know. So. <laughs> now, so uh, what what advice would you? Here's an interesting question: If you were to um, teleport back to 1990, 1992, what would you? What advice would you give the younger Tristan? I was ten years old in 1992. Perfect. I was in the fourth grade fourth grade going to the fifth grade um i remember that year vividly because that year that was the year that my nephew was born i was going on a school trip um with my fourth grade class and my nephew was born and i was telling i was telling everyone at school i have a nephew my sister had a baby my sister was 19 years old at the time i would tell that little boy to listen i would tell that boy to 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 be unafraid um, I would tell him to do well in school because, you know, because of my circumstances, I didn't do very well in school. And when I was in public school, um, I didn't do well in school until I got to college. Um, and, you know, when I got to college, I didn't think I was very smart because no one ever cultivated that academic so that the, the, the proper academic interest in me um, and no one held me accountable. And so mm. when I got to school, it was kind of like, Wow, I really got to do homework now. I really got to do this work. I really have to. Do, I really have to um, get good grades. Um, and so uh, I would tell that little boy that you need to be the best 
You need to be extraordinary. You need to read. You need to write. You need to understand. You need to enjoy school. You need to be there on time. You need to be head of the class. I remember watching that show back in the 80s. I don't know if you remember that show. I used to love head of the class. Oh, yes. Um, with, with, Robin, with Robin Giddens. And so that was important, you know. Um, and I, I would just let him know that you are a king. And there's nothing in the world that you cannot do. There's nothing in the world that you cannot change. You cannot, you cannot affect, you know, um, the world is your oyster for lack of a better term. You know, it's what you, it's, it's what you make of it is, is, is what the outcome will be. Now I'm going to step into, um, step off the planet into space and the planet is now yours. Whatever you want to say to young entrepreneurs or tell us about, um, your masterclass, the planet is yours. Tell us, Whatever you want to say at this point. Well, I'll I'll, um, I'll say two things. Um, you know, I have an upcoming masterclass, a three part series. It's free. The first class is about creative networking um, and creating sustainable relationships. The second class is winning the bid um, and ultimately uh, learning how to ink the deal. And the third class, um, the third class is um, I gotta be me. I call it I gotta be me. It is. It is is the art of presenting your true, authentic self to the world. And um, I'm calling on designers, architects, entrepreneurs, uh, and persons who are interested in starting a business to come and sit in these free classes. Um, You have an opportunity uh, to set up a private one-on-one Zoom call with me. Um, and uh, we're still working on the pricing for that to talk about, you know, your brand and, and, and how, you know, uh, well, what you should be doing uh, to get yourself uh, to the level that we're at. Um, and, um, and then we're going to be rolling out a second follow-up masterclass series called Masterclass Elite. And the Masterclass, masterclass Elite is going to be a four, possibly a four to six part series featuring uh, me and my celebrity friends having real one-on-one life conversations. Uh, in the presence of an audience. And so those classes are not free. Those classes will come at a nominal fee. We're working on pricing for that as well. Um, and so um, we'll, we'll be rolling out our new website um, very soon. Um, the I Am Tristan website that's coming uh, where we'll have all the information about all the master classes and you can learn everything about the world of Tristan Pierre Francis. Um, you can follow us on, you can follow me on social media. I am Tristan on Instagram and on Facebook and Twitter. And the care company is on all social media platforms. Um, the final thing that I'd like to say to entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs of color, is that you have to have the audacity to dream and believe in yourself first before anyone can believe in your brand. Um, you have to have the confidence to walk into the room, to, into these rooms where you know you are not welcome and you're unwanted and hold your head up high and literally be the star. Um, you have to have the ability to think outside of the box and be unique. Um, and that's unique in appearance and unique in your approach. I'm unique in my appearance because I always have something that signifies me and makes me uh, uh, independent of everyone else in the room, whether that's my glasses. I'm known for wearing very interesting glasses and jewelry um, and, and, and colorful, you know, attire. Um, and you, you just got to be different. You got to dare to be different. You don't have to come in looking like a Rubik's Cube, but you got to come in looking like a star. And that's all I have to say. I wish you all the best of luck and I hope to see you at my master class. Tristan Kier Francis, thank you very much for joining us here on the planet, Planet 30. It was so good to be here. 
I'm going to shoot over to Saturn now. I hear they're having some dinner there, so you know you might want to try it out. See if you can you see if you can go and design the space for them. <laughs> if they're open to it, you know, I hear that Mars is burning, so once they cool off, it's going to be a lot of work there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet Thirty. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com.